We are continuing our Bible series, Ask Your Pastor. Um, just real quick, we have done this because I found that the church as a whole has become so much bigger. Here's what I mean by that. With the internet, television, radio, printed media, um, it seems like the problems of the church all across this nation is our problem too. And in a sense it is. And in the same way that maybe, you know, an uncle who lives in Florida is hurt and needs help and, and we feel that pain, but it's not immediate. It's not right in our face. There are problems that we face as a church or questions we have as a church that pertain to us. The questions we have, the things that the questions we want answered. And so I wanted to know what those were. So I, I encourage you over the summertime to submit questions and and many of you did. We had about 40 or 50 questions submitted. And uh, what I did was I boiled them down to their essence, what was really being asked. And so we'll, we'll, we'll hit it generally, and then we'll get into the specifics of the question. And today's question is all about the Bible. Um, what about the Bible? We preach out of the Bible. I preach nothing else but the Bible. There are great men and great women Churches and ministries who have written great books, volumes of books, they all, in comparison to the Word of God, fall short. At best, they're trying to describe what God has already said. And so there are good books to read. I love to read books. Many of you love to read books, and that's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. But they do not supersede the Word of God. It is the Word of God. And so what we're going to do is I'm going to give you the specific questions that were asked. We're going to talk about the Bible, and, and then we'll have some scriptures to share. And hopefully at the end of today, you'll walk away with not just a better understanding of the Word, because we all want that, but, but a trust for the Word that maybe you didn't have before. So here are the specific questions boiled down into what about the Bible. Number one, this question sounds to me like it came from a seminary student, but maybe it didn't. Maybe it's just a really smart person because um, it's a good question. Could you explain the validity of how all the books ended up in the Bible? Why are the books of the Apocrypha not valid? Now, the books of the Apocrypha, if you're not familiar with those, they are extra books. And we'll get into why we don't read from those and why we don't consider those um, Holy Scripture like the rest of the Bible. Very good question. Number two, did Jesus have siblings? I suspect that this question came from somebody with a Catholic background, and we'll get into that in just a little bit. Number three, this is one of my favorite questions asked only because I know who it came from. Why was Jesus a carpenter? Nobody ever asked that question. We just, oh, Jesus was a carpenter. Yeah, of course. But nobody ever asked why was Jesus a carpenter. I think that's a great question. Number four, how long and is uh, a day when God built the earth? And number five is kind of like it. Why aren't dinosaurs mentioned in the Bible? So we're going to deal with creationism and all sorts of stuff uh, towards the end of this sermon. But those were the, the five questions. There were some that bordered on bi a Bible question, but they kind of fit into another category, and we'll answer those later. Um, but these were the main five that dealt with uh, the Bible as a whole. And so we live in this unprecedented age. For those of you who don't know the history of the Bible, the idea that you could own a Bible in your hands, readily available at any moment in time, is a very new concept. Just a generation ago, maybe a little longer, 
You may have had one Bible in your house if you were lucky. If the Bible salesman came by your door offering to sell you a King James version of the Bible, then maybe, just maybe, you'd have a Bible and it'd probably be big enough to conk somebody on the head and knock them out because it was built to last. It was the only one you were going to have. Go back even further, there may only be a Bible in the church or, or maybe just a handful of the, of the rich and the well-off who could afford a printed Bible uh, would have one. The common man would rely upon the church to proclaim the gospel to them, to proclaim the scriptures to them. Go back even further. The idea of mass producing a Bible was, was revolutionary. Once the printing press was invented, the idea that you could mass produce Bibles and get them into the hands of the common man, that, that created a lot of trouble for the part of the church that, that honestly is a black eye, that is, is, is part of the corrupt church. When, man, when the common man finally got the word of God in their hands, it changed the landscape of our faith as we know it. Today, many of us, we, we stand in this privileged uh, position of being known as a Protestant. What that literally means is somebody who protested the church that was corrupt stood up and said, by faith alone and by grace alone and through Jesus alone, someone is saved. Because they were being taught, pay, pay money, then you will be saved. Somebody died, you don't know if they were saved, come give us money, we'll guarantee they get into heaven. And people who were the common folks, blue-collar workers, people who couldn't afford their own Bible or, or weren't educated, would just assume that these people who were in positions of power were telling the truth. But now, fast forward, come all the way back. We have, if you have a smartphone, you have access to nearly every translation of the Bible for free in your pocket all of the time. I would assume that men like Paul and Peter, James, fast forward to men like uh, Martin Luther, John Wesley, if they if they knew that you they they could carry their entire library in their pocket, they'd probably die of a heart attack. Because these men would have their Bible and their volumes of books. And and they couldn't just Google something. They'd have to go to find that massive book and go through it and find the dog eared page to remember what it was they had learned or wanted to reference. We live in an age where we have access to the Bible whenever we want to. And you know what's happened? It's produced a biblical or, or a Bible laziness. Unless you're not like me, the Bible keeps getting pushed farther and farther away. The more access we have to it, I'll get to it tomorrow. I have, you know, paper Bibles. I have five or six. And that's only because when I moved from California to here, I had to leave a lot of them behind because they were massive parallel Bibles and, and, and they were all gifts given to me. This is my favorite Bible. This is, this is my, my, my go-to Bible. It's just a simple Bible, very few helps. It's just the Word of God, plain and simple. And uh, this is what I preach from. This is what I, what I go to. Um, more often than not, I, I read uh, out of my Kindle because... On a Kindle, you can find free Bibles to put on your Kindle. I can take it with me anywhere along with the rest of my, my, my library of, of electronic books. The Bible has never been more accessible than right here, right now. But the problem is we're not reading it. 
And so today I want to bridge that gap. I don't, I can't make you want to read the Bible, but maybe I can, maybe through preaching and teaching, you'll understand that maybe some of that thirst and hunger you have in your soul is better fed, not through the things of this world, but through the word of God. That the very thing that you thirst for and hunger for deep in your soul that seemingly is never quenched is not something that's filled with with something that can be bought in a store or a goal that can be achieved, but it's 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 found its satisfaction is found only in Jesus through his word. And so rather than than try to convince you of that, I'll let the Bible just talk to you about it. So what is the Bible? The Bible is a Bible means book of books. It's the most it's the most uh the best-selling book of all time, been translated into more languages than any other uh, piece of literature. Um, it, it is caused more division, unfortunately. And many of you know this because maybe you had Thanksgiving this last week and Jesus got brought up and it was like, oh, here we go. Gloves are off. We're going to talk about religion. And maybe you didn't because you knew if you got into it, you weren't going to end up friends at the end. But the Bible's made up of 66 different books. Many people see the Bible as, oh, it's just a Bible, it's a book. It, it's really, it's more than that. It's the Word of God, but it's 66 different books, 27 in the New Testament, uh, what's the math, Four, 39 in the in the Old Testament. Uh, Old Testament deals a lot with the, the Israelites, the Jewish folks. The New Testament deals with uh, the coming of Jesus. The Old Testament tells us about the the, the, the gives us the prophecies of the coming of Jesus. The New Testament tells us about Jesus and his second coming, teaches us about redemption, teaches us about salvation, teaches us about how we are sinners and that God is not, how we need salvation and we need a, a Savior. It was written by multiple authors over 1,600 years of time, written by men from all stations of life, written by royalty, written by peasants, written by the elite, Written by, written by the blue-collar worker, men who were fishermen and, 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 and tent makers. Written by physicians, written by Gentiles and Jews. It was written from people from all different shapes and sizes and backgrounds. <clears throat> Over 1,600 years of time. It contains history, poetry. It contains uh, personal and general letters, uh, meaning uh, you have the, the letters from Paul written to churches to general groups of people. Then you have letters written by Paul to a man named Timothy or Titus. These were personal letters. There's, there's correspondence, there is prophecy, and there's promise. The Word of God is, is so much more than just a book. Now, some people, there, there are two views of the Bible, a high view of the Bible and a low view of the Bible. High view of the Bible is the, is the view that we have here at South Bay Chapel and one that I have and have been trying to establish since we were put here three years ago. There's a Latin phrase, solo scriptura. Okay, What it means literally in Latin is that by scriptures alone. To give you an illustration, this is how I see myself. I come underneath the authority of the Word of God. Where we find problems is when folks see themselves as above the Word of God. So they see themselves more like this. There's the Word of God. That's a good starting point. And then I'm going to perfect the plan of God. That's a problem. Because then men, man begins to make up rules and circumstances that allow for them to do what they want, even if it contradicts the Word of God. 
And so we see our, we have a high view of Scripture. If you come and ask me a question, I won't say, hey, in my opinion. I won't say, hey, here's what the Bible says, but here's what I say. I will say, well, let's see what the Bible says. Let's go back to the Word of God. And I could be wrong, but God's Word is not. God's Word is infallible, but I'm not perfect. And so, praise God, none of us are perfect. And the old saying is that, that God draws straight lines with crooked sticks. God takes crooked people like you and I and still somehow, someway can convey the perfectness of Jesus. I praise God that only he can do that. <clears throat> so, so if you are wondering today if the Bible is a starting point or if the, it's the all in all, it's the all in all. That's sort of the earmark of the Protestant movement. Now, what does that mean? The Protestant movement begins with a man named Martin Luther. This is a very general summarization of the whole thing, but he's a young man who, who belongs to the Catholic Church, and he knows he's a sinner. He knows he's a sinner. He knows the things that he, he does is wrong. He's not going to sugarcoat it. He's not going to say, well, circumstances forced me into this. I'm a sinner. But, but what he's been taught and, and what human nature tells him is that he needs to suffer for his sin. And so he, he starves himself. When he does, he, he'll force himself to eat things like rotten food and garbage, to, for, to inflict pain upon himself, to show his penance to the Lord. He would force himself. Now, he's, he was in the, uh, the region of Germany, and so in the winter, he would sleep out in the cold with nothing to, to, to prove to the Lord, see how much I see my suffering, I, or I see my sin, I know that it's wrong, see my suffering, see my repentance, see, what, see how I'm trying to make this right. He, he'd suffer through frostbite and all sorts of things. Much of this stemmed from not the Bible teaching him to do that, but his own conscience, his own uh, human nature, and the wrong teaching that he was hearing. And so he finally reads the word for himself and realizes it's not by my, it's not by my sacrifice that I'm saved. It's by the sacrifice of Christ. And so he begins to see all the things that the Catholic Church is doing wrong, which at this time is the only church. And he writes down what's called the 95 Theses. He goes and he, he nails it to the church door and he leaves. They excommunicate him. And that roughly begins the Protestant movement. Churches like ours today, five, six hundred years later, started back then. That, that breaking off from, from, not from the church, from the corruption, begins what we know as the Protestant movement. And so in the Protestant movement, basically almost any church that's not Catholic is involved in the Protestant movement. And we aren't here to proclaim Protestantism. We're here to proclaim Jesus. And if, as a result, we become a protester to corruption by all means. That is not to say that the Protestant church is free of corruption. That's simply to say this is where this all started. Okay? So, for Martin Luther... And for his contemporaries and for the, the men that God was stirring by his Holy Spirit, they begin to see that, no, it, it's by the word. It's by the word that we know Jesus. It's by him that we are saved. Not by, not by sacrificing ourselves, not by forcing ourselves through pain, but through the pain that Jesus has already endured. By, by the death that he has already died on the cross, we are saved. 
that our sins are paid for. Some of you might come from a Catholic background. I'm not here to rail against uh, Catholicism. I'm not here to point out why it's wrong or why it's not. I, I want to be sensitive to that. But you're going to find that as I preach from the Word, you're going to see things that contradict tradition. As we talked about this a couple weeks ago, when it comes to the Word of God and tradition, Word of God squashes tradition. Traditions are great. Some of you are putting trees in your house because it's tradition, right? It's Christmas tradition. You'll, you'll sing songs. You'll open gifts. You'll do things based on tradition. Tradition's fun and good. But when it supersedes the Word of God, we have a problem. And when the traditions of men are, are held in higher esteem than the word of God, there will always be problems, there will always be corruption, and there will always be people who are lacking, wanting more, and dissatisfied with their faith. So, <clears throat> that being said, here's what the Bible says about itself. Okay, so, <clears throat> I could tell you it's good, and it's fun, and it's perfect, and blah, blah, blah. But let's see what the word of God says for itself. The word of God first says that it is exposing. Hebrews chapter 4, turn there with me. I'm going to take a drink of water as you turn there. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. I'll give you just a couple seconds to get there. Hebrews comes uh, towards the end of the New Testament, somewhere back there. The book of Hebrews, just a little background, was we don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews. Some suspect it was, it was the Apostle Paul. Um, others say possibly Barnabas or Apollos, somebody. We don't know. There's no authorship given to it. Um, but what we do know is this man knew a lot about Jewish history. He quotes the Old Testament probably more in this book than any other book of the New Testament. And he is preaching to a Jewish nation. That doesn't mean it's, it's, it's not for us as Gentiles. It's still Scripture. It's still for us. And we get to peek into the history and the mindset of, of, a, of a religious person. Hebrews 4 and 12 says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, the discerning the, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. The word of God is more than just, just ink and paper. <clears throat> excuse me, ink and paper, cardboard, leather, whatever it's made out of. It's more than just an electronic display on your phone or iPad or whatever. The Word of God exposes who you are. Most people, when they buck up against the Word of God, it's not because, it's not because the Word of God is wrong. It's because they don't like it. It hurts them. It hurts their feelings. It points out things that, that maybe we've hidden. It, 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 I've heard people say they, they use this type of deductive reasoning, which is just – we wouldn't use this any other way, but they'll say, okay, God's word says something foolish, in my opinion, so because I consider it foolish, I don't have to follow it. That doesn't make any sense. In that reasoning, you are supposing and assuming that you are smarter than the Lord, that, that what you don't understand or agree with – isn't right it's still correct it's still the truth because you don't understand it doesn't make it untrue so if you were to bring me a car open up its engine and begin to explain to me how all these things work and tie together and I said to you I don't understand it 
So you're wrong and that's not a car. That doesn't make any sense, does it? That's the same type of deductive reasoning that people use with the Bible. I don't understand it, so it must not be true. That doesn't make any sense. We wouldn't use that logic anywhere else. Um, our goal is to seek the truth, to ask God to open our eyes to it. That's why we sing that song, Open the Eyes of My Heart. We need the Lord to even show us himself, to expose, uh, to expose ourselves. Some of us, we, we, we've put a lot of, a lot of junk on us to, to, try to, to try to mask and hide what we know is true. The Bible says that no creature is hidden from God's sight, that, that with the word of God we are exposed by it. James, the brother of Jesus, says it like this, that the, the word of God is like a mirror. That the word of God, when you read it and you begin to read it and begin to understand, oh man, I need a savior. That like a, like a man going to a mirror and sees that they're unkempt, their hair's messed up, there's dirt and stuff on their face. The Bible exposes us like that. That we not only need a Savior, it doesn't just expose that, but that it exposes Jesus. That we indeed have a Savior. That while all have fallen sh uh, short of the glory of God because we have sinned, that we have Jesus. That by faith alone, through the grace of God, we can receive forgiveness for our sins. That we can be born again of the Spirit. That we can no longer be like the old man, but be a brand new creation in Jesus. The Word of God exposes its living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. The Bible says that it is eternal. That means it's been here longer than, than humanity, and it will outlive humanity. It will outlive you, at least in the physical sense. It is eternal. 1 Peter 1 and 22. And you can write this down um, and then read it for yourself. Uh, one of the reasons why we take notes here at the chapel is that, so that you can go back and study for yourself. Um, we don't really settle for spiritual laziness here. Um, we all have Bibles. We all have books. We all have pens. And we can, we can study this for ourselves. First uh, Peter 1 and 22 says, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flowers of the grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. The good news that Jesus has died in your place, that the Son of God has died a sinner's death for you when he deserved death not at all, is the good news being preached to you today. I'm not here to convince you that you are a sinner. The Bible says that the Holy Spirit has been, has been sent to convict you. You know you. You know what you've done. You know where your life has been. We could sit down and talk all day, and you would try to tell me your life, and you would miss so much. And then there's the part of your heart that nobody has access to except for you. You're the only one who knows what you store in that part of your heart. And you think that nobody else knows, but the Lord knows. And it's those very things that the Lord desires to forgive you for. We all have them, we've all done them, we all need forgiveness for them. And so today's the day to stop holding on to them. Today's the day to give them over to the Lord, because God sees them anyways. But the Word of God is eternal. 
the word of God comes from God. It's breathed out by God. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for corruption, or for correction, not corruption, correction, and for the training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Most people get the get the cart before the ox. First Timothy, see, you already knew. Second Timothy three sixteen, three sixteen and seventeen. Most people know that they should do good things. Right? If I were to have you raise your hand, you all say, yeah, we should do good works. But what happens is, is people think, okay, I'll do the good works, and then God will see me, and he will approve of me. That's getting it backwards. God loves you. God is ready to forgive you so that you might go and go, go and do good works in his name. And to be able to do that, you've got to be trained up to do so. So that you do so in a way that isn't bringing just glory to yourself. Some folks love to give and serve and do things because of the recognition they'll get for it. And the people they serve are so blessed, but their hearts are not right. And so whatever they think they're doing, they're not really doing. If they think they're impressing the Lord, they're really not. But if you've ever had a child who just sought to help you, dads, if you've ever been working on the house or doing something with your hands and, and heavy tools and kids have just wanted to help you, and you know in your mind, there's no, there's no way you can actually help. So here, hold the ladder. Here's a hammer. Beat a nail into that board. If you hurt yourself, don't tell your mother. Their help, they just want to be a part of what you're doing. And so you take those opportunities to train them up. Moms, when the kids come to you and say, hey, I want to wash dishes with you. Your first, thing, your first thought might be, it'll take twice as long. And then I'll just have to redo them anyways. But see, the child just wants to be a part of what you're doing. It doesn't matter that they don't know how to hold the sponge or use enough soap or rinse off all the bubbles. It, it, all that matters is they're doing something with mom and dad. And when you have the Spirit of God in you, it cultivates that feeling again, that, that need again to just be a part of what God's doing. But now God wants to move beyond just letting you be you know, a token helper. He wants you to be trained up to do good work. To be able to go out and to minister to others, to preach the gospel to people who are dying, to, to share the good news of Jesus to a sick and dying world. And to be trained up, you need the word of God, which is breathed out from him. Now this word breathed out, it's interesting. It, it reminds us of, of the garden when, when, Jesus, when God is making man. And he, and he forms Adam from the dust of the earth and it says that he breathed life into his nostrils. That very spirit of God that resides in man is the very spirit that breathes forth this word of God. It, it's more than just ink on a page. It's the very spirit of God. Number four, the word of God is encouraging. Romans chapter 15. As you're turning there, Romans chapter 15, verse 4. Don't reduce the word of God to chicken soup for the soul. Something you see on the Oprah Winfrey Network, just warm, fuzzy, inspirational section at Walmart kind of stuff. Okay, If you do that, you will lose all of the power. All you will do is feel good about the bad situation you're in. And that's not what we want. When we talk about encouragement, 
We're not talking about, oh, hey, go get him, buddy. Oh, hey, have a nice day. This is what we mean. For whatever was written in former days was written for your instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Hope is one of those things that, especially in this very specific culture, is lost. Because everything's going to be the same. Nothing's ever going to change. The economy is still tanking. The businesses keep leaving. Politicians are corrupt. Nothing's getting better. Hell in a handbasket. All of that. And so we very quickly abandon hope. But the Bible says that we are to have hope. What are the three greatest things? Faith, hope, and love. Hope is in there. We can't give up hope because of circumstances. But the Bible says of itself that the very word encourages us to hope. But not just to have an undirected, unguided hope, hope in Jesus. I tell you today, I have hope for you and for this church and for my family and for your health and for our finances and for everything else. I have hope based on nothing else than Jesus because he is good, because he is loving, and because I've seen him do it time and time and time and time again in my short 36 years on this earth. And so my, my, my weight, myself, is not put in any circumstance. I don't put all my money into the stock market and say the stock market will save me. I don't put all my weight into uh, the government and say the government's going to save me because that's a joke. I don't put all my weight into my hobby or my job or this, my family. I put everything into Jesus as much as I can, and I fail at it, but I still I push and I scratch and I pull and I claw to try to get myself to that place because that's the hope where I am not disappointed. The economy disappoints, and the government disappoints, and people disappoint, but Jesus never will. And so our, the encouragement is not just to be encouraged or just to have a vague hope, but to put our hope in Jesus. Hebrews chapter 12 says that, that Jesus is the author and the perfecter of our faith. That he, is, he has started something in us and he will see it through to completion. And the one thing that we don't want to add to that equation is time, and sometimes it takes time. And so we need to allow the Lord to continue to be the author and the perfecter of our faith. Ultimately, the Word of God, its main function, the reason why we cling to it so closely, or at least we try, is because it tells us, it reveals us, reveals to us Jesus. Turn to John chapter 1. I hope you're writing stuff down. There will be Q&A at the end of this where you can ask questions if anything should arise. But John chapter 1, verse 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Drop down to verse 14 of the same chapter. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. We can't separate Jesus from the Bible. 
Because Jesus and the Bible are one. Jesus is the Word made flesh. In the same way that Genesis starts off with, in the beginning, John starts off with, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word is God. This, that sets this apart like no other book. And so the Bible reveals to us who Jesus is, his nature, what he desires, how he loves us, how he seeks to forgive us, how we need forgiveness. The Old Testament prophecies is coming to this earth, and we'll celebrate that just in a couple weeks. And the New Testament, the Gospels, tell us about that time where he walked this earth. Where he, where he died, where he was buried, and he rose again. And then he ascended and sent his Holy Spirit, and the church exploded. And here we are 2,000 years later, still a church, still thriving, still working, still proclaiming because of what Jesus has done and because of who he is. And that's what we proclaim. Jesus said in, in, in John chapter 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And Paul tells Timothy, preach the gospel. Proclaim it. Be a herald. Shout it. Yell it. Tell anybody and anyone who will listen. Some of you might scoff at street corner preachers and say, oh, that's old or blah, blah, blah. They're proclaiming the word of God, and they might be doing it in a way that is dying. It's no longer readily accepted like it once was maybe a generation ago, but they're still proclaiming the word of God, hopefully. Not all of them are, but some are. And so when we come here, I want to give you the gospel of Jesus. Not good ideas, not how to make you feel better about your sin, but to, that you would be convicted of your sin and cling to Jesus because he is here to forgive you. Now, all that being said... What if you say, so what? So what if the Bible says about itself a bunch of stuff? Is the Bible reliable? How many of you have seen news reports, and it'll be something along the lines of, uh, Jesus was married to Mary Magdalene, or we found Jesus' bones, or something else the da vinci code which is a really dated reference but still it's still popular in some circles you hear these reports evidence found and blah 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 does it scare you does it frighten you do you think uh oh did i put all my eggs in the wrong basket some of you have heard things like this and you've allowed that to become a barrier between you and the word of god well i saw this news report with this guy who I don't know who he is, but he told me that this is contradicting the Bible, so that guy must be right and not the Bible. That's your choice. You can do that. It seems silly, though, to trust somebody on a television more than you would trust the Word of God. And so I want to get to a place where you can know more about the Word of God, things that you would not learn within the pages of the Bible, because they are told through things like archaeology, and they are told through things like evidences that are found throughout history and time. So why, why can the Bible be trusted? Let's begin answering the first question. Why, why is the Bible, why is it considered the valid word of God? Did somebody choose that? Did we just decide as a people that these were the books? Because there's lots of other written 
scriptures, right? There's the Quran and the works of Buddha and the Baha'i stuff, and there's all kinds of different holy scriptures. What makes this one different? I will tell you this, that no other book on this planet has been contested and disputed like the Bible. It has been gone through with a fine-tooth comb for generations. It has taken rock-hard atheists and converted them into the most Jesus-loving people ever. Men like C.S. Lewis, who, who were atheists and scientists and intellectual, and then they met Jesus, and it changed everything about life. If you're familiar with a man named Lee Strobel, he wrote a, a series of books, but the first one was The Case for Faith. And he wrote this, this book from a reporter's perspective. He was an atheist. He wrote for, for newspapers in Chicago, and he was a, a well-known journalist. And he decided, you know, he was just so mad at Christians and, and what they believe. So, so I'm going to debunk Christianity. I'm going to be the first one to do this in the way that a journalist would. And he, as he progresses through studying the, Jesus in the same way that a journalist would study evidences for a case or, or a story, he didn't debunk Christianity. His, his atheism got debunked. And he became a Christian. And he loves Jesus. And if you've never read The Case for Faith, I would suggest that you read it. It's a very good book. And time and time again, he met with men and women from all fields of, 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 of work and, and discovered time and time again the validity of the Word of God, the validity of faith in Jesus. How many of you have ever heard of the, because I know you have, the Rylands Library Papyrus P52? None of you have. I had, but I didn't know what the name of it was. Here's what it is. It's a scrap of paper about two inches by three inches, about this big. And um, it's a piece of papyrus that contains John chapter 18, verses 31 through 33. Carbon dating puts it back to within one generation of the early church. Conservative estimates by men and women dedicated to, to validating the existence of, of ancient scripts and texts put it somewhere between 100 and 150 A.D., so if Jesus died, rose again, 33 A.D., roughly, and, and men like Paul and Peter ministered till 60, 70 A.D., men like John who outlived all the rest of the apostles and lived till about 100 A.D., this was a piece of scrap found from that era. This is unprecedented. If you've never studied ancient uh, uh, antiquities of scriptures or, or, or writings, that is unprecedented. Works like um, Homer's Iliad and Homer's Odyssey, they have about six manuscripts that are nowhere near in the hundreds of years, maybe even thousands of years from their original writing. And they're considered legitimate. They're considered reliable. There are literally tens of thousands of manuscripts that have been found through archaeology and through digs and through all sorts of research that don't contradict the Word of God. They validate what we already have had for centuries. Tens of thousands. If you had five to ten 
manuscripts that dated within a thousand years of some book of antiquity, somebody would say, you know what, that's valid. And what, what's said there and here, it's all, it's true. We have tens of thousands, some dating as close to a couple of generations, if not closer than their original writings. Truth be told, we have no original writings of the Bible. We have at best copies of copies. But men and women have died to preserve this. We, in, in the, I want to say 60s or 70s, the Dead Sea Scrolls were found, right? Maybe even, maybe even earlier than that. There were these clay pots that were filled with these scrolls that somebody knew that they were, they were going to be destroyed. So they, they put them in these clay pots to preserve them for centuries. So they were found one day. And what happened was many of these scrolls told us what we already knew. That the word of God was the same today as it was then. But how did it become this? How did it go from scrolls and all kinds of other things? I've heard about the Nicene Creed and just a council came together and said what the Word of God is. And, and what about the Apocrypha? That was our first question. The Apocrypha differs from the Holy Bible in this way. The Apocrypha, when you read it, if you've ever read it, and I've only read bits and pieces of it because I, got, I, got, I want to put my time here first. Um, it just sounds weird. Stories about Jesus tearing, telling Mary that she's got to become a man to be holy. Um, we, a lot of it's missing. I'll basically boil it down. It contradicts the word of God. The authors in the, in the New Testament or the Old Testament don't reference them. Many times these, these books of the Apocrypha were written centuries later, but then given the names like Thomas and Enoch, because men then knew the same thing that we know now, that if you take a product and slap a famous name to it, it will sell a lot faster. That's why, that's why Peyton Manning's face is on a lot of stuff. Because there are people who say, oh, Peyton Manning, I'll eat, I'll eat his pizza. Or I'll drive his car. I'm not one of those people. But you might be. And so they knew the same thing. Two, three centuries later, I want, you know, I want to change Christianity. I have this gospel. I'm going to slap Thomas's name on it. Or Philip's name on it. Or Peter's name on it. And there's no evidence that these men ever wrote these things and that these weren't written in that same time that they were alive. So we don't consider the Apocrypha holy scriptures in that way. What about the creeds and the councils? All the creeds and the councils did was get everybody on the same page. See, today we can, I, can, I can conference with people on my computer or my iPad. We can sit down. They can be halfway across the world, and we can talk about stuff, and we'll be on the same page. It's as though we're in the same room. But not 2,000 years ago or 1,700 years ago. It took people planning for a year or two to get to the same place at the same time to say, look, what are we all preaching and teaching and talking about? Are we all preaching out of the same stuff? Do we all have the same books? And that's all they did. They made sure everybody was on the same page. They made their declarations of faith and, and the Nicene Creed and all that. But they didn't pick and choose which books they wanted. They simply took the books that were already circulated and accepted by the churches and made sure everybody was on the same page, which is a good thing. And it took a long time because there was no email, texting, Facebook, or anything like that. When you hear the claims on television or on news reports that, oh, this person's going to debunk or they have new evidence, just realize that that has been happening for thousands of years. 
and nobody has ever ever been successful so take take what the Bible says about itself take that evidence put those together the Bible contains prophecy prophecy is is words given um, in, in one sense words given about a future event the Old Testament is filled with prophecies about Jesus about the coming Messiah I believe it's Isaiah chapter uh, 7 or chapter 9. I, I forget which, but it says that uh, you know, a son will be born. He'll be called the Prince of Peace, you know, Father, you know, Wise Counselor, all that. There's prophecies about his virgin birth and where he'd be born and what time frame he'd be born in and, and that, that uh, he would die for our sins. Isaiah 53 is all about the suffering servant dying, being pierced and crushed and bruised for our sin and our iniquities. If you take all of the general and specific prophecies, you have about 600 plus different scriptures foretelling of the coming Messiah. Now, statistically, for any one man to meet even six of those criteria, the odds are better for a man to go to the state of Texas, cover it completely with three, a three-foot stack of silver dollars, paint one of them red and mix it into the stacks, and find it on the first try, then, it, then for one man to meet even six of those prophecies. Jesus meets all of them, and he's the only one who meets all of them. When he first, when the church first arises in the book of Acts, you know, the, the Pharisees, the, the religious authority, they're like, we got to stop this. And this man named Gamaliel stands up and says, hey, you know, these a lot of men have stood up in the name of God to start a revolution and they come up quickly and they have an uprising but then we squash them and they're gone and, and this guy did that and this guy did that and they were gone, done and gone within a matter of days weeks maybe months let this play out if this is if this is just man starting up something you know around this man named Jesus it'll die out but if it's not if it's of the Lord then you're fighting against God himself. And I'd say 2,000 years later, that's wise counsel. That, that men and women today still are fighting against God and they're still losing. And praise God that many of them lose not to become bitter, but they lose to give their life to Jesus. So we answered our first question, the validity of the, of the Bible, why we don't include the Apocrypha. Um, did Jesus have siblings? If you're from a Catholic background, if that's where this question arises from, um, that's understandable because what they preach and teach is that Mary was not just a virgin for Jesus' birth, she was a virgin for life. Her, you know, She and Joseph never had sexual relations to ever produce any more offspring, and so she was a virgin until the day that she died. Unfortunately, the Bible doesn't tell, tell us that. The Bible tells us that Jesus had brothers and sisters. The book of James is written by Jesus' brother. The book of Jude is believed to be Jesus' brother. In Matthew chapter 13, verse 55 and 56, people were, were listening to Jesus preach, and they're like, who is this guy? Like, he's just, he's not a Pharisee. He's not, he hasn't been studying since he was born. Like, who is he to stand up? And they say this, is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? 
And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get these things? See, they, they marveled at Jesus not because he was some mysterious, unknown, in the dark, wearing a cloak, you know, spiritual leader. The contrary. We've seen this kid grow up. His dad's a carpenter. I know his, I went to school with his sister. I know that guy. Aren't, we can go talk to any one of them that we want. Catholics will say, well, no, they're talking about brothers and sisters in Christ or some other thing. Um, well, then, but what about the reference to Mary? Jesus had brothers and sisters. That does not take away from his divinity or his purpose or plan on this earth. Only that he was born of a virgin, which if anything is going to mess with your head, it should be that, not that Jesus had brothers and sisters. There's nothing that tells that Jesus had to, or excuse me that Mary had to be or continued to be a virgin after the birth of Jesus. I believe that she had more children and these are the ones referenced here in Matthew chapter 13 as well as in Mark chapter 6. The problem with preaching that is that from a Catholic background people have been taught to worship Mary. That also is not found in the Bible. She's not a co-redemptrix is the, is the name. That somehow through her and Jesus you are saved. Mary was a woman to be highly esteemed. God chose her to have a child, to have his son. I say she deserves some recognition. She didn't choose any of you. Or excuse me, he didn't choose any of you or any other woman of the past. He chose Mary. He compliments her. Compliments her faith, extends to her grace, but she's not to be worshipped. She's not to be lifted up to the same level as Jesus. She's not a saint to be prayed to, to be worshipped, and, and, and she is not divine in the way that Jesus is. Why was Jesus a carpenter? Jesus was a carpenter because his stepdad Joseph was a carpenter. If you're a contractor today, look down at your hands. That's what Jesus' hands would have looked like. Because he worked with his hands, he followed his stepdad's footsteps and became a carpenter, just like his stepfather. He, like men even do today, as they grow up, they take their father's trade. If your dad was a contractor, chances are you might become a contractor. If your dad was an electrician, you might become an electrician. If your dad was a doctor, you might become a doctor. If your dad was into drugs and alcohol, you might be into drugs and alcohol. If that was his trade, hopefully not. But the truth is, is Jesus was a carpenter in the same way that many of you have found your professions. Because your father or your, 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 per, your person before you and your lineage did the same thing. And so it speaks more to Jesus' humanity. And it reminds us that Jesus is not, like I said earlier, far off and aloof and inaccessible. He was a man's man. He was a blue-collar worker. I worked in a factory once. That's like as blue collar as it gets. And it was it was tough work. I mean, it was it actually was easy work. The tough part was being with the men that were there, because they talk different, and they talk about things differently, and they expect you just to do the same thing. And being a Christian, I couldn't do that, not without betraying Jesus. I couldn't do that and still be not considered a hypocrite. That's what made times difficult. You know, you don't you don't make a lot of friends that way. Especially when you start sharing with them why you don't speak or talk about the things that they're talking about too. 
So Jesus was a carpenter. You know, he wasn't a CEO. For the most common man, this this speaks more to me than than a lot of other things. That that Jesus was accessible. That Jesus wasn't. We we wouldn't have been afraid to approach Jesus. Children weren't afraid to approach Jesus. They they went after him because he was probably fun. If you're a Christian, have fun. Okay, Jesus was a fun guy. You can be a fun guy too. Lastly, how long is a day when God built the earth? Why aren't dinosaurs mentioned in the Bible? This is awesome. You're going to have to bear with me. Not that you haven't already. But I've got to share with you some theory. Okay. Now, why is it theory? Because it can't 100% concretely be proven by the Word of God. So I'm going to share with you theory. These are things that we can discuss and talk about. But if we find ourselves on one side of the fence or the other, we can't stop being friends. You can't start hating somebody over these things. You shouldn't hate anybody, period. But you shouldn't divide over these next issues we're going to talk about. And people have done a really good job of causing a lot of division in the name of creationism. And it does no good to anybody. All you've got is a divided, fragmented church that the world looks at and says is a bunch of fools, not because they follow Jesus, but because of the things they're, they're standing up for. You are going to fall on your sword for one thing and one thing only, and that is Jesus, not creationism. Okay? Creationism is a worthwhile study, and there are those who use it in the wrong manner, and there are those who avoid it for the wrong reasons. We don't want to be either one of those. We want to understand what the Word of God says, and we want to hold it with an open hand so that we can be shaped and molded by God as we journey through life, to turn this into a Hallmark card, as we adventure in life, that we would be shaped and molded by the Lord. So how long was a day? This is a debate because we don't understand some of the things that were said in the Bible. And so Genesis starts off with, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It was it was. It was formless and void. There were, the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And then he spoke, let there be light. And it says that there was evening and then there was day, the first day. And so that word day has been hotly contested for a long time. Well, does that mean a period of time? Certainly, uh, the earth wasn't created in a day or, or, or light wasn't created in a day. Know this, that the first few verses of the book of Genesis is all told in poetic form. Could it be that a day was longer than a 24-hour period? It could be. I try to simplify things. If the Bible says that in a day something was created, I'm going to go ahead and believe that. Could I be wrong? I guess so, but I'm, I'm erring in the side of caution. I'm going to just stand behind the Word of God and what it says. And I'll be wrong because the word of God is wrong. And even that sounds silly because I know the word of God won't be wrong. Now, can you believe that a day was longer? I suppose you can. Does that make you right or wrong or no more? I don't, I don't know. For me, this is a topic of discussion. This is something that we can talk about and, and go back and forth and debate about. But if it's going to come between us and friendship and fellowship, we have to be very, 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 very careful. Because, the God, because our God is about unity. Our God is about uh, you know, being a, done away with division. 
And if we're going to divide over something, let it be because of sin, let it be because of something that is completely wrong, not something that's open for debate. So, and then some people have an issue with this, not because of what the Word of God has said, but because they're trying to fit evolution into the Word of God. Now, some of you have been taught that evolution is bad. And from the um, Darwinian side of it, which when you read you know, his book, it's a lot about the, the – there's some – what's the word I'm looking for here? It's kind of – it has a direct purpose. It's getting to the fact that maybe there's a superior race amongst the earth. And so you have to take it with some caution. Um, even if you are a devout evolutionist, you still deal with the issue of how it all started, which the Bible never shies away from. The Bible explains from the first pages. Can you believe in evolution and be a Christian? You can if you keep it in an open hand. If you close your fist and say it's the only way, <clears throat> excuse me, it's the only way, you're going to have a lot of problems. I mean, you're just going to butt heads with everybody you ever meet, especially in the church. But if you keep it with an open hand and you have your reasons and you can explain yourself uh, with, with politeness, when you can not sound like you're crazy when you say it, then absolutely you can. You might be wrong, and that's not what I believe, but I still love you. And if you believe in creationism, then you hold it with an open hand, you have your Bible references, but you never turn this hand into this to use to punch somebody in their spiritual face. You keep your hand open, you discuss with them in love, and you do your best to, to stay in fellowship with them, especially another Christian. You might disagree completely, and that's okay. You can still love one another. There are lots of, of men on the internet that you can find. I think they've done a world of good. They've studied, but then sometimes it causes division, and that's where I have a lot of problems. If you're causing division with truth, you might be using it the wrong way. You know, a sword in the hand of a skilled warrior is used to defend themselves and their family, but but a sword in the hand of a child, somebody loses, is going to lose a foot. And so we want to make sure we use the truth like that. We 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 use caution and candor, and we're respectful and polite. But what about dinosaurs? What happened to them? Where are the dinosaurs? I don't know. I will give you a handful of theories. All of them are good theories. I don't think any of them answer anything. And I think one day we'll get to heaven and the Lord will show us and we'll say, oh, that's what happened to dinosaurs. Some Christians like to bury their head in the sand and say, what dinosaurs? I've never seen them. Dinosaurs never existed. Please don't ask me any more questions. That's foolish. And they're the minority, but we don't do that. Dinosaurs existed. We know that. The Bible is a thing. We know that. How do they come together? Let me give you some theories. Theory number one is called the gap theory. Raise your hand if you're familiar with the gap theory, not the gap store, the gap theory. Okay, right on. So the gap theory is this. So Genesis chapter 1 starts off like this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Stop right there. Here's where the gap starts. Then verse 3. And God said, let there be light. 
and there was light. Some theorize that between verses 2 and 3 is the billions of years needed for dinosaurs and eras and fossils that we find and all of that. Could that be true? I can't tell you that's true or not true. I can tell you that it's a theory. Does it hold a lot of water? I don't know. I guess it could be. You know, it says that the earth was, for, was void and without form. And it could be that in there somewhere there was the earth existed in a way prior to what God has revealed to us. I find that the gap theory, though, is used more by people to try to explain the billions of years needed for many of their theories about evolution and things like that. Is it wrong? I don't know. Is it right? I don't know. I know that it's a theory. If you have that theory, I still love you. And if I don't have that theory, please don't use it to pe beat me in the head with. Number two, the they didn't make the ark theory. This goes more to the Christians that hide their head in the sand. Um, when the floods came and Noah built the ark, oh, dinosaurs didn't make it. Poor dinosaurs. They'd still be here if it hadn't been for the ark and Noah leaving too soon. Could this have happened? I don't think so because it says that God directed that the animals would go into the ark. And if those dinosaurs were there at that time, I believe they would have made it into the ark, just like the rest of the animals did. There are lots of animals that are very dangerous like dinosaurs that were going onto the ark that somehow God was directing and keeping from attacking Noah. Did they miss I this is probably the one theory that holds the least amount of water for me. No pun intended. That they didn't make the flood. They didn't make the ark. Um, could it still be true? I guess. But somehow it kind of contradicts the word of God a little bit, so I don't put a lot of weight into that one. Uh, third theory, the water canopy theory. Genesis chapter 1 verse 6 says, And God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the, uh, separated the waters that were under the expanse, from the waters that were above the expanse, and it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening, and there was morning the second day. So what's the big idea? The big idea is that prior to the flood, there was a water canopy around the earth. There was water on the earth, and there was water over the earth. That would be the functional ozone layer of that time. And that when the floods came, that water canopy broke. That's what provided a lot of the water for the earth for the flooding. What this created was sort of a greenhouse effect. Um, fruits and vegetables that grow within a greenhouse, especially one with, with lots of uh, moisture, sort of like a, uh, a rainforest, things grow bigger. And so as a result, um, there was dinosaurs that existed that were so big because of this water canopy. It caused them to grow bigger. Uh, theory is that the humans were bigger. Theory is that the fruits and vegetables were bigger. Theory is that everything was bigger. And that when God directed the animals onto the ark, that just babies came. Because it didn't say you had to take the adults. It said you just had to take two of uh, of the uh, you know two of every clean animal and and seven of every unclean animal, or vice versa. Uh, seven of clean and two unclean. And so you could take the babies. The problem is if you deal with something like a T. Rex. With Noah being on the ark for about a year, even a baby T-Rex is going to grow and wreak a lot of havoc. Like I've seen Jurassic Park, and that's all based on theory and all that, but they don't seem like the kind of things you cuddle up next to. And then you've got the things like Velociraptors, and it seems like even the, even the baby ones are going to be really dangerous. 
And so could this be possible? I, I guess suppose it could. Is it likely? I don't think it's likely. But there are men who truly believe this, and that's okay. Um, lastly, this is, another, this is probably the second to last theory. It, it, it holds some water. Um, is that they still exist. And this one probably makes me look like I'm crazy, like I'm talking to you with two heads, that dinosaurs still exist. Here's the theory, okay? Loch Ness Monster. Champ, the sea monster of Lake Champlain or whatever, Champlain. Um, and a multitude of other, other creatures that are seemingly only seen very rarely, um, that those are in fact dinosaurs that still exist. You say, Pastor Tony, you're crazy. It might be crazy. But here's what makes it a little less crazy. I think it's arrogant of humans to think that we have discovered everything about this planet that is to be known. We have not searched the deepest waters of the ocean. Sure, we have sonar and satellites and all that, and we're getting more and more information every day. But there are lands that we haven't discovered. Have any of you seen the, um, the enormous holes that are opening up in places like uh, Denmark and the Netherlands and things like that? Giant sinkholes that are just happening, and nobody knows why. Okay, Nobody knows why because we don't know everything that is to be known. No, there, there are things happening on our earth that, that just defies logic and reason. Could it be that there are places on our planet where, where some, not all, but some dinosaurs or ancient animals still exist? I'd have to say because I haven't been to all of those places, it could be a possibility. Is it likely? I don't know. Is, does Loch Ness really, does Nessie really exist? Probably not. But it'd be foolish and arrogant of me to say, I know absolutely for sure, because I haven't seen or done or been to any of these places to explore them scientifically. And so that's, those are your handful of theories where Scripture kind of backs us up just a little bit. All right, to make me sound even more crazy, but it's okay. Job chapter 40. In Job, in the, in the closing chapters of the book of Job, God shows up to talk to Job and begins to ask these questions. Where were you when I created the earth? And for, for just question after question after question, where were you when I made this? Where were you when I made that? He's pointing out Job's humanity. He's joining, uh, pointing out his authority of life, God's authority of life over Job. And in verse 15 of chapter 40, he says, Behold, behemoth which I have made as I made you. He eats grass like an ox. Behold, he, his strength is in his loins. His power is in the muscles of his belly. He makes his tail stiff like a cedar. The sinews of his thighs are knit together. His bones are tubes of bronze, and limbs are like bars of iron. Most Bible translations will tell you, in a little side note, that what God is referring to in that moment is the hippopotamus. Have you ever seen a hippopotamus? My understanding is that they're dangerous creatures. Like, if you are confronted by a hippopotamus, just start saying goodbye to everybody because the hippopotamus is going to tear you apart. The part that I disagree with this being the, the description of a hippopotamus is the part about his tail. Have you ever seen a hippopotamus's tail? It's like yay big. And God points out that the tail of this creature becomes stiff like a cedar, like a tree. Okay, so... So my discrepancy is this. I don't see that in a hippopotamus. Could it be that God was describing a different creature that we're unfamiliar with? It could be. Now, we've got behemoth, and we've got one other creature called the leviathan. Not, not, you know, behemoth is always referenced to anything that's big. 
uh, house was a behemoth, that truck was a behemoth. But Leviathan kind of gets lost. Job chapter 41 says, uh, verse 1, Can you draw out Leviathan with a fish hook or press down his tongue with a cord? Can you rope, put a rope in his nose or pierce his jaw with a hook? Will, you make many, will he make many pleas to you? Will he speak to you soft words? Will he make a covenant with you to take him for your servant forever? Will you play with him as with a bird, or will you put him on a leash for your girls? Will traders bargain over him? Will they divide him up among the merchants? Can you fill his skin with harpoons or his head with fishing spears? Lay your hands on him. Remember the battle. You will not do it again. God is talking about this creature in the ocean, the Leviathan. Okay? Some will say it's a crocodile. Could be a crocodile. I'm not saying it's not. What I'm saying is that whatever this creature is, is nasty and big. He caps it off by saying, if you fight with this thing, you're not going to do it again, and you won't forget the battle. Could these be, Behemoth and Leviathan, could they be references to, maybe not dinosaurs directly, but, but ancestors of dinosaurs? Maybe. Maybe not. Maybe it really is just a crocodile and a hippo. But it gives us something to talk about and to theorize about and backs up a little bit this, this theory that possibly dinosaurs in a very small minority exist in places that we have yet to discover as a people and as, as, a, as a world. All of that. Lot to take in. Big long sermon. I like long sermons. If you don't like long sermons, stick around. You'll get used to long sermons and you'll love them one day. All of this, to be, all of this being said, the Bible can be trusted. The Bible is all about Jesus and the revealing of himself to you. We sang holy, holy, holy. To me, nothing reminds me of my unholiness than being reminded that Jesus is holy. And that holiness, that, that unholiness reminder is not to, to stick me down into the gutter, but to bring me up out of it. To show me that he has indeed done everything needed to redeem me from that gutter. And so today I, I pray that you would go read your Bible. Get your Bible out. Read it tonight. Read it while you have some downtime. If you don't have any downtime, find downtime. And sit down and just read your word and let the Lord speak to you. Let's stand and pray. There are 144 hours in the week roughly. And you have given the Lord one-ish. Okay? When you look at it in that perspective, it lets you see that the battle that the next week is going to be, how much you need this time. I want to pray with you. Just, just go with me here. Lord, I pray for your people. I pray for myself. Lord, more often than not, we, we disagree with the Bible, not because of what it speaks as truth, but because of what it says about us. And Lord, what we want today is not to justify our sin or justify our position, but to embrace what you have called us to, forgiveness and love and a future found only in you. Jesus, help us to not just see your word as a book with ink and pages, but to see it as life, to not forsake it, Lord, to take the day and the privilege that we have to access it at any given time of the, of the day and, and, and just take advantage of that. Forgive us for not doing so, myself primarily. Forgive me, Lord, for the times where I have forsaken reading my Bible, that I have not made time to do so. 
Father, please help me and help us that as this day progresses, that we would take this day to find time to read your word, to read the Psalms and the Proverbs and the Gospels, and to read, to read all, all that we can today, and tomorrow to make the same endeavor, to read again. Whether it's a, a verse, a chapter, a book, whatever it is, Lord, that we would receive from it the life that you have for us. And may Jesus be high and lifted up in our lives. May we see him as our God and see him as our Savior. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.